0: Five weeks. For five weeks now, we have been exploring what it means to love like Jesus. Five weeks is a long time. And I wonder, how are you doing? How have you been doing with the challenge? You've been challenged to pay more attention to those you're called to love? You've been challenged to overcome your judgment and your feelings of superiority, to draw near in the shoes of those you are called to love. And then Claire reminded us last week that as God's children, we're called to love people we really don't want to love, like our enemies. So how goes it? Has loving like Jesus been tough enough for you? Someone came into my office, this week just to tease me and he said so far so good the love challenges haven't kept me up at night yet well a warning a warning for him and for the rest of us because today we move toward the end of the gospel story we move closer to the cross of Jesus now the lessons get truly tough So listen to these challenging words of Jesus as they come to us from the Gospel of Matthew. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons and kneeled before him. She asked a favor of him. And Jesus said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left, it is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Now, when the 10 heard it, they were angry with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and said, "You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave." Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So the disciples and Jesus are drawing close to Jerusalem. If you've been reading along in the Gospel of Matthew, they are almost to Beth Age, where Jesus is going to send a few guys into town to grab a donkey for a parade. And at this crucial moment, in Matthew 20, verse 17, which is just three verses before the story we just read, Jesus literally pulls his disciples aside, and for a third and final time in Matthew's gospel, he predicts his death and resurrection, saying, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They'll condemn him to death. Then they will hand him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. With this as the backdrop, the mother of James and John decides it's time to come to Jesus to ask for preferential treatment for her sons. Lord, all I want is for you to put them at your right and left hand in your kingdom, That's the traditional first and second place of honor at a banquet table. Lord, they were the first to follow you, among the first. They followed you faithfully from the beginning, and they are following you now into Jerusalem, into the danger that awaits you there. So please, Lord, please say that they will be important in your kingdom Please say they will be leaders in your movement, that they'll be on the right side of things, that they'll be able to help your kingdom come in vital and significant ways. Notice what Jesus asks. Can you drink from the cup I'm about to drink from? And without hesitation, they say yes. And then Jesus does an amazing thing. He agrees with them. He doesn't chastise the mother of James and John. He shows no anger, no chagrin towards them. He acknowledges their devotion, their future sacrifice. He simply says, I can't grant such a request. That's for my father to grant. Recognize this would have been the end of the story right here, except the other ten disciples found out about it, didn't they? When they heard about Mrs. Zebedee's request, and when they realized that John and James had participated in the ask, as the gospel says, they became angry with the two brothers. And so now, right as Jesus' ministry is coming to an end, right as he faces the challenge to love the world by laying down his life, Jesus' closest friends choose this time to devolve in bickering, into anger, into petty argument. Now, on the eve of Palm Sunday, Jesus actually has time for one more crucial lesson about tough love, about the love that followers of Christ must show the world. He gathers them close. And he says, you know, you are speaking like Gentile rulers, like high-ranking officials of Rome, They lord it over others. They're tyrants who show off their authority, who order people around. But it shall not be this way with you. That's not the way it will be with you. You, he says, will be servants. You will give your life to others the way I give my life for the sake of the world. You will follow me, and you will love one another, and you will love the world by serving, by going low, by humbling yourself. Didn't I tell you it was going to get tougher? Talking about tough, humbling ourselves, really? Well yes, really. Humility. Humility is our calling as Christ followers. Humility is the thing that distinguishes us from the rest of the world. It's the thing that colors our relationships and infuses our love for one another, humility. Now let's make sure that we know what humility means. Humility is not humiliation. We are not called to humiliation or to humiliate one another. And humility is not servitude, it is not being forced to do things against our will. And humility is not modesty, no humility, true humility, as Jesus teaches, consists of willingly taking the low place, the place of a servant for the sake of love. It's countercultural. It can be difficult but it's always beautiful, beautiful and always good. A small group of couples were meeting with their pastor. They were going to be planning a new member retreat, and the pastor thought it would be a good idea to start by going around the circle and having everyone share something they were really thankful for about their church. And out of the blue, one of the women just burst out and said, well, I know what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for the Thursday morning men's Bible study. Well, everyone knew women don't go to the Thursday morning men's Bible study, and so she said, let me explain, let me explain. Not long ago, the Bible study was, was studying Philippians 2. They were studying about how Jesus emptied himself to serve, and, and so my husband decided that he would serve me. I was sitting at work that afternoon, and a red rose got delivered to work, and then I got a message saying, don't pick the kids up after work, I've taken care of everything. Just come home as quick as you can." So I go home, and there dinners on the table, the kids are being fed, there's a babysitter. The house is almost picked up the way I would have wanted it picked up. And my husband just takes me, and he turns me, and he says, come on, we're going out to dinner. I've taken care of everything. So, she said, you can see why I am so thankful for the Thursday morning men's Bible study. One of the other women elbowed her husband really strongly and said, I thought you went to the Thursday morning men's Bible study. (laughs) Friends, our families cry out. They cry out for servant dads, for servant moms, for servant children, for servant husbands, for servant wives. In my last church, I was kind of the wedding queen. I did all of the weddings, mainly because I had known the young people as they were growing up. And I used to have a lot of fun with the pre-marriage counseling. I was actually kind of mean to some of these young couples because I would start by saying, before we do anything else, I just need you to tell me why do you wanna get married? Well, you know what they said 95% of the time. Because we're in love, right? And I would say, well, congratulations, but that's not a good enough reason to get married. And then they would kind of look askance at me, and they'd fumble around, and they'd come up with some other backup answers, like, well, it's the right thing to do, or it's God's will for our lives, or, or we want to have a family. And each time they would come up with one of these answers, I would say, that's great, But that's not a good enough reason to stay the course for 20, 30, 50 years of marriage. And finally, they would get smart, and they would turn to me and say, well, then you tell us. (laughs) (laughs) What is a good enough reason to get married? And that's when I got to tell them what I honestly believe. Get married because you want to serve that person sitting next to you for the rest of your life. Get married because you want to grow more Christ-like as you learn to love with that kind of humility. Henry Nouwen was perhaps one of the brightest, most prolific Christian writers of the last century. He wrote 39 books. He was a professor at Notre Dame and then at Yale and then at Harvard. Really, really smart man, but he found after 20 years in the academic world that he was in what he liked to call a very dark place. And he writes, in the midst of this darkness, I kept praying, Lord, show me where you want me to go, and I will follow you, but please be clear and unambiguous about it. Well God was, in the person of Jean Veneer, the founder of the Ark communities for mentally handicapped people, God said, go and be their chaplain. Go and live among the poor in spirit, and they will heal you. The call was so clear and distinct, I had no choice but to follow, he writes. So I moved from Harvard to La Arc, from the best and brightest wanting to rule the world, To men and women who had few or no words, who were considered at best marginal to the needs of our society, it was a very hard and painful move that I'm still in the process of making it, he writes. After 20 years of being free to go where I want and discuss what I choose, the small hidden life with people whose broken minds and bodies demand a strict daily routine in which words are the least requirement. It doesn't immediately appear to be a solution for spiritual burnout. And yet, and yet my new life at L'Arc is offering me new words, new vision, a new understanding of the humble love of God. Henry Nowen humbled himself. He served as the chaplain of the La'arc community for the rest of his days, for 10 years until his death. And there he writes that he learned of love. He learned of God's love for him, he learned of his love for others, and he learned the power of a loving community, things you can only learn, my friends, by going low. You can only learn them from serving, from willingly taking the low place for the sake of God's love. Now, friends, don't miss this. Jesus invites us to love, and this invitation is an invitation to go low. It's in the low places that we see clearly. In the low place, we can see others, we can see ourselves, and even more importantly, we can see God without the distraction of our ambition or our agenda. In the low place, we find Jesus who told us, I am gentle and humble in heart, and I will give you rest. The Apostle Paul knew this as well. In fact, he suggests to the Philippian church and to you and to me that we should take on the mind of Christ who humbled himself, emptied himself for us on the cross. He said, look to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new mind. It's the mind of a servant, the mind and heart of someone who willingly takes the low place, serving for the sake of love. Friends, it is not easy. It's tough. It's a tall order, I know. But imagine, imagine the difference, such humility, such going low for the sake of love. Imagine what difference it makes in a marriage, in a parent-child relationship, at work, in this community. Imagine the difference in the world around us if all of those who profess to be Christian actually took just a portion of the mind of Christ with us into daily life. Going low, serving others for the sake of love. We have this great gift, says the Apostle Paul. We have this savior, this one who by the grace of God comes to us, becomes flesh for us, who has shown us true humility, true love, going low on our behalf. And he also shows us how to behave. He also shows us what kind of church, what kind of community God means to create. What a blessing. What extraordinary good news, and as believers, as the body of Christ, Paul reminds us that the selfish eye, the pompous mind the ear hungry for compliments, the mouth that speaks none, the heart that has little room for others, the hand that serves only self. Such things, they are destructive for the soul, they're destructive for families, they're destructive for Christian community, and they're indeed a contradiction to the gospel which speaks and sings of a Christ who was first and always the servant of others, a Christ who taught as he walked that road to his death. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be a servant, you must go low. Friends, the world yearns for, it cries out for people who know this savior. The world longs for people who have the same mind of Christ. The world desperately needs desperately needs humble servants. Those who can empty themselves enough to love like Jesus. So may God grant us the power, the humility, the grace to go low. And let all God's people say, amen.